Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Stephen Marks. I'm delighted that Stephen agreed to come and talk to us today about sex, drugs and mental health. Stephen is a senior lecturer at MNU where we first met and I was delighted to be his colleague within the department. Stephen is a qualified mental health nurse, advanced clinical practitioner and has worked in liaison psychiatry. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with that area of care, I'm going to invite Stephen now to tell us a little bit more about what liaison psychiatry is and his role within that. So thank you so much, Stephen, for agreeing to speak to us about this topic. I know it's something that you're really passionate about, like myself. So are you able to explain to our listeners a little bit more about your role in the liaison team? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on, Michelle. It's my pleasure to be here today. And, you know, it's so great that we met each other just as you were leaving MMU um, because we get to work with each other like this. Um, So, yeah, in relation to liaison psychiatry, it's a term that not many people have come across, maybe unless they've used the service. All it means is we are the team who provide mental health care, support and input Um, to people that have been admitted to the general or acute hospital um, because of a physical health problem, but they may well have a comorbid mental illness, um, or it may well be that they've come to A&E because they feel unsafe, they've harmed themselves. Basically, in a nutshell, it's kind of mental health provision within a general hospital setting. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you for that really comprehensive overview, Stephen. I think sometimes we can use terms and terminology without really kind of thinking about what they mean. So thank you for for sharing that with us. You agreed to come on to the show to talk about um, psychotropic drugs and their side effects. That was based on a conversation we had um, over coffee one time. So I'm just wondering, are you able to share with our listeners what we mean by the term psychotropic drugs? Absolutely. So psychotropic drugs are medications that we use to treat psychiatric disorders. Um, The main ones are depression, anxiety and psychosis. You've got five major groups of drugs. Um, You've got your antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, 
anxiolytics, um, sometimes known as hypnotics. Most people have usually heard of like Valium, benzos, that kind of thing. Um, and you've also got stimulants uh, that we use to treat ADHD. So a lot of people have probably heard of um, Ritalin. So I think important to note that sometimes these drugs are used to treat other things. So diazepam and other benzos can be used to treat seizures, withdrawal, that kind of thing. And there's also a distinction that I think it's helpful to make between psychoactive substances and psychotropic medication. So a psychoactive substance refers to anything that has an effect on the brain. This can be as simple as nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, opioids, recreationally drugs. So basically, all psychiatric drugs are psychoactive, but not all psychoactive substances are for the treatment of mental illness. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's a really good distinction to make for our listeners. I'm just wondering, based on that, because I think sometimes we can get the the, the um, medications slightly confused, so it's really good that you explained that, especially um, for me as well as I'm kind of processing our conversation. But I'm just wondering, are you able to share for our listeners some of the common issues people report when taking medication for their mental health with regards to sex? Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I'm really passionate about raising awareness of. I think in conversations I've had with you in the past, Michelle, I've flagged up that, you know, it's not something that I think we're great about talking about as healthcare professionals. Um, But I think what's quite worrying is that, you know, sexual side effects are really common uh, with all psychotropics. So when you look in the BNF, um, they list their side effects as being very common or common which means that 1% to 10% of all people that take these medications are going to experience some kind of sexual dysfunction. So the typical symptoms, if if you're a man, you can have erectile dysfunction. Um, Men and women can have anorgasmia, which is the inability to achieve orgasm, or you can have very delayed orgasms. Um, You know, loss of libido, really important as well, that kind of desire for sex. A lot of women report vaginal dryness, so that just makes sex unpleasurable. So we've got lots of potential problems here with both function and desire. When we think about sex, we think about kind of, you know, the function, the ability to do it, um, the desire, the libido, and also the quality or the the absence of orgasm. Um, I think, you know, with things like erectile dysfunction, it's, it's easier to objectively measure that. Um, But I think we also have to acknowledge that that loss of libido um, in males and females can be just as distressing, you know, not wanting to have sex and not understanding why. Um, So I think it's really important that we have these conversations. And I think what's a bit of a worry as well is that a lot of these drugs come with the warning that the sexual dysfunction can persist even after the treatment has stopped. Sure, that is really concerning, isn't it? You know, kind of that loss of sexual desire and being really unsure where that's come from as well and thinking actually you know as a provider of care if we stop this treatment then things should start to go back to normal but it feels like from what you're saying that may not be the the case at all so I'm just wondering from your perspective um what does good sexual health care look like when we're thinking about this within the context of our clinical um consultations So I think for any healthcare provider, you know, not necessarily working in mental health, not necessarily being a prescriber, it's about having those frank and open conversations about sex. 
incorporating that into the consultation in an open and non-judgmental way. You know, I think sex is a hugely important and enjoyable part of everyone's life. So I think when you develop a dysfunction around that, that's really distressing. What the evidence suggests is that patients feel too embarrassed to bring it up, but also healthcare professionals feel too embarrassed to bring it up. So we've got this gulf here that no one wants to talk about it. I think from a healthcare professional point of view, maybe there's the perception that it, it, the question would be seen as intrusive or you know embarrassing. But I do believe that the onus needs to be on us to start that dialogue, especially if we're prescribing an intervention where that's a, a genuine side effect. I think if we are kind of putting that discussion about sex at the heart of the conversation, the patient then feels comfortable to bring it up. It's kind of like they've got permission to bring that up and not be embarrassed about it. Um, Because I do think a lot of them want to talk about it, but not until they have been asked directly. So certainly in my own practice, whenever I would prescribe an antidepressant, this is the, the drug that's most commonly associated with these sexual side effects, I would give the patient that heads up and I'd say, look, this is quite common, do keep an eye on it. And I think if you set that expectation quite early, um, it means that person is maybe more likely to bring it up in, on review, tolerate it for a little while to see if it reduces, but also have that conversation to maybe look at alternatives, look at treatment, look at support around the sexual dysfunction. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, just listening to you speak, it sort of reflects some of the conversations we've, we're having in, in this series of HIV matters. We've had Bex who talked about the importance of um, sexual pleasure from the perspective of women living with HIV and thinking about how we we raise that in, in the consultation. Also, we've had Joe Josh on the um, podcast who's talked about the importance of empowering women or people living with HIV within the consultation. And what I really liked with that is that kind of the onus about sharing that information with people, especially when we're prescribing um, medication. So I think we we can both agree that this area of care is really important. And as you mentioned, you know, having that good sexual health and well-being is part of our kind of human needs and basic human needs. So from your perspective, why do you think it's important that we get more conversations about this within our clinical consultations? Um, so, I think, you know, there's a few reasons. Um, I guess from, you know, a health promotion point of view, I guess going back to erectile dysfunction, that can actually be a sign of a lot of other conditions, a lot of other diseases. So it can be associated with depression itself, um, high cholesterol, diabetes. So I think from a physical health screening point of view, um, that's, that's really, really helpful. Um, because, you know, you having that conversation could then prevent a heart attack 10 years down the line if you're screening someone's cardiovascular risk factors. Um, but I think, you know, thinking more about people's psychosexual welfare, um, I think if we are giving people medication that's making them not able to have sex, that can have real serious implications for, like, family planning, trying for a baby. But, you know, over and above that, you've got sex for pleasure as well. It's not all about biological necessity, reproduction. Um I think if you're taking a good sexual history and asking those questions, it gives you an opportunity to maybe identify some high-risk sexual behaviours 
what we know about LGBTQ plus patients is that they already feel a little bit marginalised and discriminated against when accessing healthcare. You know, my background as mental health professional was quite often in that privileged position. I may only be that I might be the only person that that patient sees on a regular basis, and you have that trusted rapport with someone. Um, so if, for example, I'm able to take a really good sexual history from a gay man, I might be the one that encourages that person to get a sexual health screen. Maybe we'll discuss some kind of behaviours that put him at high risk of contracting HIV, for example. So I think, you know, sex cuts across all disciplines, all professions. It's about those health promotion opportunities. Um, certainly, you know, again, what, what the stats indicate is that LGBTQ plus people experience high rates of mental illness, substance misuse, self-harm, suicidal ideation. Um, likewise, people with HIV or indeed any chronic physical health condition are more likely to develop a depression. So there's a really good chance that these patient groups will be on the radar of mental health services. Um, the other point I want to make, I guess more generally, it's about not making assumptions when you're talking about sex. You know, an example I wanted to share was in liaison psychiatry, we often dealt with people who were presenting with unusual behaviours, and these can be caused by quite rare, weird and wonderful conditions. Now, if we had kind of an older person who presented with some kind of cognitive impairment, bizarre, unusual behaviour that didn't fit a typical dementia diagnosis, we'd quite often work with the medical team to rule out neurosyphilis. Now, neurosyphilis is, is fairly rare, and it's a late-stage complication um, of syphilis. It can lie dormant in, in the body for, for decades and reappear much later in life. Uh, and at this point, it manifests like dementia, depression or psychosis. Now, typically, because the patient is older when they have that, the point I want to make is that we don't make assumptions. If you've got an elderly person in front of you, we still need to ask about sexual health and, and, and sexual past behaviours. We don't want to make those assumptions because we've got a nice little old lady sat in front of us. Thank you for sharing that. And I think very much what you've just been talking about is sort of something that's really close to our heart at HIV Matters is that kind of the idea of that intersectionality of all these kind of competing um, layers of people's lives. And I guess you've just touched on that really well about the elderly person in front of you. You know, I think there's lots of things thinking of as we're both educators of nursing. Um, I know my nursing students are getting younger and younger. I can't begin to think that it's because I'm getting older and older but there is that you know assumption and I know speaking to them you know 40 is like really old and actually now I'm, I'm over 40 now so it's not so it's kind of thinking about those perceptions and as we look at our aging population um, and I know there's been a lot of work done around aging um, and sexual well-being and that kind of isolation and, and connectedness and I think as we get in an aging HIV cohort it is really important to think about um, the person in front of you as well so thank you really for articulating that so well Stephen. So you've previously mentioned that you notice that this is an aspect of care that we don't routinely 
you know, speak about. And if we just alluded to, it's not something that we particularly talk about that much as colleagues and definitely as educators of the, you know, the, the next generation of nurses. It's not something that we particularly necessarily focus on that much. I know we've had Mark Hayter, who's a colleague of ours on the show, to talk about sexuality and how we'd like to think about teaching issues like this in, in the curriculum. So I'm just thinking from your point of view, Stephen, how would you like to see topics like this being taught within either nurse education or healthcare um, education? Because like you've mentioned, you're an advanced nurse practitioner. So throughout our career, you know, this is a lifelong learning profession, isn't it? So how would you like to see topics like this being taught? So, I, you know, I, I know we're very much on the, the same page when it comes to this, Michelle. And, it, you know, from a, a basic level, it's about embedding conversations within the curriculum. Um, you know, what I've noticed is that there's very little about sex and sexuality when you look at the pre-registration standards of education for nurses. Um, and what that sadly means is that, you know, topics that aren't mandated don't necessarily get covered um, unless you've got staff like you and I with a specialist interest. And, and part of that has to do with, with the pressures of, of working in HE. You've got so much to cover in those three years um, just to meet all of the NMC requirements that the students need to progress, that it can sometimes feel difficult to embed those, those conversations. But what I think it's about reviewing the curriculum, it's about looking at where you can have these conversations, where they would fit and still meet learning outcomes. Um, so I am quite lucky I'm going to be taking over the medicines management unit at my uh, university uh, from, from the autumn. Um, that's going to be a joint unit with adult nurse students, mental health nurse students. You know, I'm going to have a captive audience to listen to me talk about sex, which I'm very excited about. Um, and you mentioned Mark there. One of the things that he 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 mentioned or said to me that stuck with me is if you put the word sex in a lecture title, you're going to have great attendance at that because it, it gets a buzz. Um, so I've called that lecture Sex, Drugs and Psychiatry just to get people hooked, get them interested. But, you know, I think the other thing we can do as well is you know think about maybe how we assess students. Um, there's a lot of scope to set exercises that the student can look at an area that interests them it doesn't have to be a fixed question so if you've got a student that is interested in sex sexuality that kind of thing you know if you've got some kind of assessment process that rewards that exploration and investigation then they're still getting the academic credit so that could be a bit of a strategy and I think from a post-registration point of view you know one of the things that I did as an advanced clinical practitioner was set up an education program for my acute trust colleagues. Now the focus was that the focus of that was very much on mental health and supporting people in a mental health crisis. But it's very much part of the ACP role. It's part of the medical role. You know, you've got kind of like nurse educators in practice who, if they're passionate about it, can bring that sex, that sexuality, the prescribing stuff into post-registration CPD. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's wonderful, isn't it? And I think I'm going to take on that top tip as well and just add sex into everything <laughs> that I, every title of every, uh, you know, if you have my, my interest um, as well. So that's a really good top tip. I know Mark shared a, a quite a few top tips in this podcast with us as well, but I'm going to, I'm going to take that one. I've just made a note of that. So thank you for sharing that.
I think throughout the podcast so far, we've both kind of been really kind of passionate about being more proactive in our conversations um, that we're having in our clinical settings. So I'm just thinking for any listeners out there who are kind of thinking about about this and thinking, oh, actually, yeah, how can I be more proactive in, in, in my consultations? Do you have any top tips um, for people out there to think about Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, starting with any initial assessment, regardless of the service, I feel that should incorporate some element of, of sexual history taking. Um, so, you know, in the service that I worked, we had this quite big performer that we would use when we're assessing any new patient. I would say that most services have similar. So staff could perhaps audit their existing performer and look to see if there's any simple changes, simple questions that they can just add in. Um, you know, because it doesn't have to be that that detailed, just a few screening questions to, to get that dialogue going. I think from a patient experience point of view, um, it's about making sure that the patient has the opportunity to, to discuss that if they want to. Um, one of the ways that we can do that or help that is to use language that normalises the issue. And what's that, what that's going to do is help the patient to feel less embarrassed about disclosing any issues. So one of the phrases that you could say would be, you know, many women have problems with their sex life. Some stop wanting sex, some cannot get in the mood for sex, and many cannot achieve an orgasm. Uh, many of our patients have these problems, so it's something that I ask everyone about. Is this something that concerns you too? And I think by using that kind of language, it's, it's it doesn't sound like an accusation. It doesn't sound like it's loaded with stigma. It's an open question. It also makes that person realise that it's quite common. It's happening to other people. Um, but it's something that we're taking seriously and we want to know about and we want to help. So I think language is, is very, very important. Um, so, you know, I think you can adapt that sort of question, but to cover everything, you want to be asking about arousal, desire and orgasm. You'd obviously tailor that depending on the setting and the intervention that you were doing. Now, from a prescribing point of view, um, I would want to be discussing sexual side effects with most of my patients so that they had that heads up. Um, I know there's some debate, you know, if, if you tell patients all the side of effects, side effects of a drug, you're going to scare them off. But I think when some of these side effects are so common, they're almost almost certain to happen. We've got that duty to kind of get that informed consent. But I think the plus side of that is if you build that conversation in, you can set real, realistic expectations. You can also instill a bit of hope that if it does happen, there are interventions to treat it. So for erectile dysfunction, we've got drugs like Viagra, that kind of thing, to treat the, the ED. Um, but we can also look at alternative antidepressants. Some have a better side effect profile than others when it comes to kind of sexual dysfunction. Um, if someone's on an established dose, we can look at reducing that. Um, even down to practical things, you know, if it's a woman who's got vaginal dryness, you know, you can encourage her to try some lubricant to see if that improves sexual pleasure. One of the things as well, I think, you know, before we get to that stage, it's about ensuring with that patient if they really need that antidepressant. Um, you know, we've got updated guidance recently from NICE that says you should only treat with medication if depression's on the more severe side of things. For less severe depression, you know, 
uh, lifestyle changes, exercise, CBT is the preferred route. And, and I do wonder if there's a bit of a misconception about antidepressants because they are so common in primary care that there may be mild drugs when actually we need to change that perception a bit. And, and going on an antidepressant should actually be quite a, a big decision uh, for your patient and your prescriber, I believe. Um, but, you know, getting back to sex, I think my main recommendation would be that the healthcare professional needs to steer that conversation, even if they find it a bit embarrassing, because really it is far more embarrassing uh, for the patient to have to instigate that. And, and it's our responsibility to make them feel comfortable, make them feel safe and, and, and seek out those health promotion opportunities. Thank you, Stephen. You've mentioned some really good um, tips and techniques there for our listeners, and I really liked your open conversation to inquire around that. It felt really, you said, normalising the situation and also inviting that actually this is something that we would take take seriously. And again, something that kind of really we believe in here at HIV Matters is kind of thinking about when you're starting on treatment, this is a big thing. You know, This is a big thing and it shouldn't be taken lightly so I really liked the idea of really thinking about when we're prescribing medications or being given a prescription of medication is this been a conversation that a we've been part of and the other options have been explored fully with us and is it that informed choice um, as well so thank you for really kind of highlighting that within this area of care as well. So Stephen, for our listeners out there who are interested in learning more about these aspects of care, are you able to signpost them to any resources that you may have or have found useful within your time? Absolutely. So the best resource that I used in my clinical practice was the, the Maudsley Practice Guidelines for Physical Health Conditions in Psychiatry. Um, this was an absolutely amazing book, but you know, despite the title, it, it's not just for mental health staff. Um, it gives a load of practical advice on the identification and management of common conditions uh, that people with mental health issues might develop. So really appropriate for primary care or, you know, secondary care clinics for things like diabetes, asthma, COPD. Um, it's got loads of top tips in it as well. It's actually, that's where I kind of adapted the question about, you know, normalising sex and sexual functions really good it's, it's very kind of evidence-based but with practical applications uh, the other thing as well is the Maudsley published guidelines for psychotropic prescribing so may not be of interest to everyone maybe more geared at mental health prescribers um, but certainly if any of your listeners fall into that category it's a really good resource what I would say as well is that most trusts offer a kind of library service or might have a budget for kind of learning and development so do see if you can get those books through your trust to you know save on money get one for the service get one for the team and then it's a resource that everyone can share and use Brilliant. thank you I think that's a great some great tips and advice there as we we think about HIV care and the importance of mental health it feels like a great resource that we could have in clinic there is also some great resources that have been developed by the National AIDS Trust around HIV and sex so I can drop the links to those um, resources in the um, show descriptions as well so Stephen, if it's okay with you, I'd just like to pick up on um, something that you mentioned previously about um, the prescribing 
um, of antidepressants. And I'm just wondering for our listeners out there who require support with their men- mental health or for, for listeners who are trying to support somebody with their mental health or their psychological well-being, what would be important to consider when thinking about taking prescribed medication? I think, you know, as I said before, Michelle, it's, it is a big decision to be made. And I think people shouldn't rush into that. Um, I think you want to have those discussions with your healthcare provider on if it's the right medication for you, if it's going to help, what are the side effects, what are the benefits, and make that kind of risk be reward um, way up. I think for people who are already on on psychotropics, um, one of the things that we see quite often is that they will discontinue that of their own accord. Um, And that's something that I really need to recommend against. Um, You know, psychotropic drugs are quite potent um, and people put themselves at risk of kind of withdrawal type symptoms if they suddenly stop. Now, antidepressants are notorious for this. Um, We've got this mantra uh, when it comes to prescribing psychotropics, and that's start start low, go slow. And what we mean by that is we have a really small starting dose to make sure that that person tolerates it, and we titrate that very, very slowly until they get the full effect. Now, the same is true when you stop that, um, because serotonin type drugs antidepressants the withdrawal from that can be really quite quite horrible um so if you've been on an antidepressant for months or years the withdrawal you know the withdrawing that medication should take place over a course of months um to minimize the disruption and the distress to that patient um the other thing as well is you know not just the withdrawal side effects um we're also worried about relapse as well. If someone has been on um, a psychotropic medication for many years, you want to have a really good discussion, a really good think about what else is going on in your life at that minute. So if you do want to stop medication, it's important to be in a pretty calm, stable place because if you've got other stressors going on and then you start to withdraw that medication, there is a bit of a chance that you might relapse. So it's important to be in a good place to feel well and do that in collaboration with your healthcare provider to make sure that they can respond to any changes as they start to withdraw that drug. Thank you for sharing that great um, advice with us, Stephen. I'm also kind of, while, while you're talking, I was sat here reflecting on some of my consultations and some of the people that I provide care for and some people I'm supporting in my kind of personal life as well around discussions um, about to take treatment or not to take treatment or what support's available for them. But can you just explain more about the risk of prescribed medication alongside recreational drugs? Absolutely, Michelle. And again, you know, something that I'm very keen to raise awareness of um, because there can be real risks there. Um, And I think it highlights the point as well why good history is so vital when you're making health, when you're making safe healthcare interventions. So, excuse me, there's a relatively rare but serious condition known as serotonin syndrome. Uh, that occurs when there's too much serotonin in the brain at any one time. So most antidepressants produce serotonin, and that's part of the way that it helps you feel better. Um, The trouble is, if you combine that with other substances that increase serotonin, you become at increasing risk of this syndrome. 
Now, most recreational drugs, the stimulants like cocaine, MDMA, speed, um, all result in increased serotonin in the brain. Even the ones that you wouldn't think of, so heroin, for example, opiate painkillers, all produce serotonin. So if you're mixing these, um, you're putting yourself at, at high risk. Now, the symptoms can be relatively mild initially, kind of diarrhea, restlessness, but can very quickly develop into tremors, altered mental state, um, and if left untreated, you know, can progress to, to seizures and even death. So, it, you know, it's absolutely a medical emergency. I think the trouble is, is that the more that you take, the higher the risk. So things like chemsex put people at very high risk um, of serotonin syndrome if they're already taking an antidepressant, because typically people who are engaging in chemsex are taking multiple drugs, multiple stimulants. They're staying up for long periods of time, which, again, is exacerbating that risk. Um, and, it, it, you know, it goes hand in hand. It's not uncommon for people to use drugs to make them feel horny or to give them that confidence to have sex. Maybe they've lost that confidence because they're depressed. Um, so it's a bit of a, a vicious cycle. Another thing as well that's a real worry, a real risk, is combining recreational stimulants with uh, Viagra. So we know that a lot of stimulants can make you lose your erection. So it's quite common for people having sex to, to use Viagra to, to get that erection. Um, Viagra and poppers are an especially lethal combination, so that can cause a really sudden drop in your blood pressure. You know, instant almost death isn't uncommon with that. And, you know, as you know, a lot of these erectile dysfunction drugs are now available online, over-the-counter, without a prescription. And while these online services do screen for these risk factors and ask about recreational drugs, I do worry that a lot of people maybe just click what they think the computer wants to hear in order to, to get, get the prescription, get the medication. Um, another risky combination that I just wanted to highlight uh, was that of St. John's wort, an antidepressant. So St. John's wort, for people that don't know, it's a horrible remedy for low mood. You know, you can get it over the counter in any kind of health food shops. So people maybe don't see it as a, a kind of risky thing. But the way that that acts is kind of serotonin is implicated. So again, we do not want to uh, combine that with antidepressants. So what this highlights to me is just the importance of that comprehensive history taking. You know, you need to be asking about recreational drugs. You need to be asking about, you know, are you using any Viagra that's not prescribed from a different source? And are you having any over-the-counter medication? Because if we don't have that comprehensive and safe history, we could be putting our patients at risk through making that prescription if we're doing that uninformed. I'm sat here, you know, my, my mouth, my jaw's dropping because I'm thinking, oh gosh, yeah, you know, I hadn't really heard of the serotonin syndrome before. So thank you for sharing that with me. And also thinking about sometimes as clinicians, we ask questions, but aren't really kind of sure, you know, from a patient point of view, why, why they're being asked of us. So actually it's about that education around it being important. You know, we're not being intrusive asking these things because we want to know if you're taking drugs to give you a lecture. We're actually trying to think, as you've mentioned, about this safe prescribing and making sure that you have the information that you need to kind of make these choices um, uh, as well. And I think also you mentioned about antidepressants. We sometimes can see those as, um, well, it's just, you know, they're 
they're prescribed and it's just not as kind of giving them their their true status if that makes sense because they've been frequently prescribed over the years that we don't actually see them as powerful as you've mentioned throughout this podcast you know, that they should be taken very seriously you know there's lots of people that take them for lots of different reasons but equally they you know, there is lots of kind of care around that that we need to think about um as well and also yeah lastly you mentioned about that availability of drugs sometimes you know that's getting increasingly more and um, so just being aware of um what people are taking and you know those different sources that they're getting them from as well so thank you so much Stephen for your time today and answering these questions so now it's time to get to know you a little bit better so for our listeners are you able to share with us something that you do as part of your self-care yeah absolutely I mean my theory on self-care is that you should do things that reduce stress but you should also do things that maximize fun I think to reduce stress I'm trying to get more boundaried with my work-life balance so I think deleting emails off your phone on weekends, on leave, in the evening. You know, I think as nurses and academics, we can work a bit too hard. And, you know, there's always the next email to reply to. And But I just got to think, you know, yeah, our personal lives are important too. And switching off um, is the best thing we can do for ourselves. But I think, you know, to maximise fun as well, I always try and make sure that I've got someone in the diary, the social calendar, whether that's a gig, dinner with friends, board games night, anything like that. So that would be my top tips. Yeah, I'm just writing all these down, Stephen, because I I do suffer with that boundary uh, and I am really getting better. And I like the idea of, you know, my work life's very, very planned um, but my social life is probably sometimes just happens. So I've started to kind of get better at planning things in um, as, as well. So that's a really good top tip. So thank you. Are you able to share with us any books that you've been listening to or reading lately? Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite an avid reader. I um, kind of challenge myself to, to keep reading every year. Um, I tend to go through little phases where I get obsessed with you know certain genres so recently, it's been food memoirs. Um, so this year, I've really enjoyed, um, it's called Taste My Life Through Food. Um, and that's by Stanley Tucci, who I'm sure you'll be familiar with from films like Devil Wears Prada, that kind of thing. Uh, but he's also a kind of a really good chef and, and food writer. Um, and the other one I really loved was uh, Hungry by Grace Den, which was a really lovely book about growing up. Um, I think she's from the Northeast, so kind of growing up in the 70s and 80s. And there's that real nostalgia about the food that we had when we were little, little cosy reading. Can't recommend it enough. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I really like the idea of my life through food. It is, it, again, that's part of my self-care, you know, the food. It's, it's brilliant. So thank you for sharing that. I'll definitely be checking those out as well. And finally, if time, resources and money weren't an issue, what would you like to change or see done differently? So I think my big magic wand item, and I, I'm not sure this is ever going to happen, but it would be enough investment and development in these psychotropic drugs that we didn't have to tolerate the sexual side effects. I think development of psychotropics has kind of stalled a little bit. I don't think they're seen as, as sexy. They're not as investable. 
Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done in the side effects, the, the way that it makes patients feel. So that's my big ticket item. But I think, you know, on a more realistic level, I'd like to see more discussion about sex and sexuality on healthcare curriculum. But, but I think that is realistic. And I think it's something that you and I are chipping away at. And just being passionate about it can sometimes spread that enthusiasm and, you know, give people permission to do it, to just talk about it and start teaching it. So... Yeah, that's my my magic wand items. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you again for sharing your time and expertise with us on HIV matters. My pleasure. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.